0: Today is August 2nd. In 1990, at about 2 a.m. local time, Iraqi forces invaded Kuwait, Iraq's tiny, oil-rich neighbor. Kuwait's defense forces were rapidly overwhelmed, and those that were not destroyed retreated to Saudi Arabia. The emir of Kuwait and his family and other government leaders fled to Saudi Arabia, and within hours, Kuwait City had been captured and the Iraqis had established a principal government, a provincial government. By annexing Kuwait, Iraq gained control of 20% of the world's oil reserves and, for the very first time, in the substantial coastline of the Persian Gulf. The same day, the United Nations Security Council unanimously denounced the invasion and demanded Iraq's immediately withdrawal from Kuwait. On August 6, the Security Council imposed a worldwide ban on trade with Iraq. On August 9, Operation Desert Shield, the American defense of Saudi Arabia, began as U.S. forces raced to the Persian Gulf. Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, meanwhile, built up his occupying army in Kuwait to about 300,000 troops. On November 29th, the UN Security Council passed a resolution authorizing the use of force against Iraq if it failed to withdraw by January 15th, 1991. Hussein refused to withdraw his forces from Kuwait, which he had established as a province of Iraq, and some 700,000 Allied troops, primarily American, gathered in the Middle East to enforce the deadline. At 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, On January 16, 1991, Operation Desert Storm, the massive U.S.-led offensive against Iraq, began as the first fighter aircraft were launched from Saudi Arabia and off U.S. and British aircraft carriers in the Persian Gulf. All evening, aircraft from the U.S.-led military coalition pounded targets in and around Baghdad. As the world watched, the events transpire on television, footage transmitted live via satellite from Iraq. Operation Desert Storm was conducted by an international coalition under the Supreme Command of the U.S. General Norman Schwarzkopf and featured forces from 32 nations, including Britain, Egypt, France, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. During the next six weeks, the Allied force engaged in an intensive air war against Iraq's military and civil infrastructure and encountered little effective resistance from the Iraqi Air Force or air defenses. Iraqi ground forces were helpless during this stage of the war, and Hussein's only significant retaliatory measure was the launching of Scud missiles attacks against Israel and Saudi Arabia. Saddam hoped that the missile attacks would provoke Israel to enter the conflict, thus dissolving Arab support for the war. At the request of the United States, however, Israel remained out of the war. On February 24th, a massive coalition ground offensive began, and Iraq's outdated and poorly supplied armed forces were rapidly overwhelmed. By the end of the day, the Iraqi army had effectively folded, 10,000 of its troops were held as prisoners, and a U.S. air base had been established deep inside Iraq. After less than four days, Kuwait was liberated, and the majority of Iraq's armed forces had either surrendered, retreated to Iraq, or been destroyed. On February 28th, U.S. President George Bush declared a ceasefire, and on April 3rd, the U.N. Security Council passed Resolution 687, specifying conditions for a formal end to the conflict. According to the resolution, Bush's ceasefire would become official, some sanctions would be lifted, but the ban on Iraqi oil sales would continue until Iraq destroyed its weapons of mass destruction under UN supervision. On April 6th, Iraq accepted the resolution and on April 11th, the Security Council declared it in effect. During the next decade, Saddam Hussein frequently violated the terms of the peace agreement, prompting further allied airstrikes and continuing UN sanctions. In the Persian Gulf War, 148 American soldiers were killed and 457 wounded. The other allied nations suffered about 100 deaths combined during the Operation Desert Storm. There are no official figures for the number of Iraqi casualties, but it is believed that at least 25,000 soldiers were killed and more than 75,000 were wounded, making it one of the most one-sided military conflicts in history. It is estimated that 100,000 Iraqi civilians died from wounds or from lack of adequate food, water, and medical supplies directly attributable to the Persian Gulf War. In the ensuing years, more than 1 million Iraqi civilians have died as a result of the subsequent UN sanctions. And in 1973, Summerland was a high-tech leisure center that was built in Douglas on the Isle of Man and opened in 1971. The venue was designed to hold 10,000 people in five floors and including swimming pools, amusement arcades, and an underground disco and children's theater along with restaurants and bars. The fire was started about 7.30 p.m. on August 2, 1973 by three boys, two age 12, and another 14 who were smoking by a disused kiosk next to the mini golf course. The center was built using innovative construction methods and new plastic materials, including transparent acrylic glass sheeting called oroglass which became known as horror glass. When it became molten, the burning panels dripped onto those who were trying to escape. It was initially thought the fire wasn't serious, and as people began to leave, an organist and Compare told them it was only a chip pan fire. Staff took about 20, 25 minutes to contact the fire brigade. Some people returned to their seats, but later, as the fire burst into the building, the organist screamed, My God, it's burning. Get out. As Summerland, many children were trapped on upper floors, which meant parents ran upstairs rather than heading towards the exit. Many were trampled in the rush, and emergency doors had been locked. Survivor Sally Naden told the BBC it was horrific, a horror inferno. There was an explosion and then a huge wall of flames from the floor to the ceiling like a waterfall of fire coming towards us at great speed. 50 people, 9 of them children, died in the disaster and 80 were injured. About 3,000 holidaymakers were inside the leisure complex at the time of the fire. Five members of a single family from Essex were killed, including 10 20-year-old girls and 17 children lost one or both parents in the disaster. The victims came from across the UK and included men, women, and children. 11 of the dead were under 20 years of age. A large proportion of the dead came from Merseyside and Cheshire. A public inquiry opened later that year was chaired by Mr. Justice Joseph Chantley. Its report was published in May of 1974 and returned a verdict of death by misadventure. There were no villains, but a combination of human errors, a reliance on old boy network and poor communications, led to the, z- the disaster, the report found. The inquiry said that ore wasn't to blame for the scale of the disaster, and the material only ignited until the building was already ablaze. New building regulations introduced after the disaster, including ensuring emergency exits are never locked. They also stipulated that children in entertainment venues should always be accompanied and accommodated on or near ground level. No one has ever been prosecuted for the fire itself, but on September 17, 1973, three Liverpool boys appeared before Douglas Juvenile Court. They admitted willfully and unlawfully damaging the lock of a plastic kiosk next to Summerland. They were each fined three pounds in order to pay 33 pence compensation and 15 pence costs. And finally, John F. Kennedy's encounter with a Japanese destroyer on this day in 1943 may be the most famous small craft engagement in the annals of U.S. naval history. Somewhat later, when asked to recount how he had come to be viewed as a hero, the then future president replied, it was involuntary, they sank my boat. While on a mission to the Solomon Islands in the South Pacific, Kennedy's patrol torpedo boat, the PT-109, was rammed by a Japanese destroyer slicing it in two. Other PT boats in the area assumed the crew was dead. Two crewmen were, in fact, killed, but 11 survived, including its skipper. After clinging for five hours to debris from their boat, the crew made it to the Coral Island. Kennedy decided to swim out to sea again, hoping to flag down an American warship. None came. Kennedy began to swim back to shore, but strong currents made his return difficult. Finally, the surviving PT-109 crew members swam to a larger island. There, they encountered two natives who took a distress message that Kennedy carved into a coconut shell to an Australian coast watcher, Lt. Arthur Evans, on a nearby Gomu Island. Kennedy's message read, NERU IS, NATIVE KNOWS posit HE CAN PILOT, 11 ALIVE, NEEDS SMALL BOAT. Kennedy and his crew were paddled to Gomu, From there, the PT boat took them to safety. The coconut shell found its way to the Oval Office. For his gallantry in action, the Navy awarded Kennedy a Navy Cross and Marine Corps medal. The injuries he suffered during his ordeal also garnered him a Purple Heart. For JFK, however, the consequences were more far-reaching. The story of PT-109 went viral and followed Kennedy into a political career as a congressman, a senator, and, in 1961, the nation's 35th president. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. The PeopleHistory.com Iraq Invades Kuwait at History.com The Isle of Man Holiday Resort Fire at TheSun.co.uk and PT-109 commanded by Lt. John F. Kennedy at politico.com. The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana, created by Kevin McLeod on incompetech.com. If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more, please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day. I hope you have a great day.